right, good afternoon, everyone, and welcome. My name is Jill Doherty, and I'm a Global Fellow at the Wilson Center's Kennan Institute. Thanks for very much for joining us today for our book talk on Serhii Pulaki's really amazing book, Nuclear Folly, A History of the Cuban Missile Crisis. And we are very grateful to our co-sponsors for today's event, the Cold War International History Project, the History and Public Policy Program, and the Nuclear Proliferation International History Project. And before we get started, I'd like to remind you that you can stay up to date with uh, upcoming events and publications on our website, on Facebook, on Twitter, as well as our podcast. And uh, The Russia File is one of them. And of course, my own, <laughs> our own, Canon X, which I host. And if this uh, event inspires you to dig further into the Cuban Missile Crisis, you can listen to the latest Canon X podcast, shameless promotion here, uh, which actually debuts today, our second season. And it's precisely on this, the discussion that Dr. Plohi and I had on those fateful days in 1962, as well as his research proce process in writing that book. And you can also find our latest analysis of events in the region on our Russia file and Focus Ukraine blogs. So there's a lot, a lot going on and with other blogs on the Wilson site. So please check it out. So today I'm really glad uh, and very grateful to host Dr. Serhii Plohi. We have spoken a number of times and let me just give a little background. Dr. Plohi is the Mikhailo Hrushevsky Professor of Ukrainian History and the Director of the Ukrainian Research Institute at Harvard University. He is a leading expert uh, and authority on the region, and he is a very prolific uh, author. He's published extensively in English, Ukrainian, and Russian. I have a number of his books right here, and uh, they're all really fantastic. I highly recommend them and including the one that just came out. I don't know how Dr. Plohi can do this, but uh, two in a row that have just been page turners. The second last, the last one uh, was called Chernobyl, the History of a Nuclear Catastrophe. So you can buy all these books wherever you buy your books, and you can also uh, follow the link on today's event page. So Dr. Plohi, with all of that, welcome back to the Canon Institute. Uh, thank you. Thank you, Joe, for this introduction. And it's really a pleasure to be back to Canon Institute. I was a fellow at the Institute a number of years ago. Maybe we'll come back in person once we are able to travel. But now it's a great pleasure really to talk about my latest book on the Cuban Missile Crisis. Fantastic. Well, again, now for our audience, I'm sure there are going to be questions. And I hope a number of you have been able to read the book. So if you do have questions, you can submit them via email to kennan at wilsoncenter.org, or you can do it through Twitter at Kennan Institute or our Facebook page. And please, as usual, give us your name and your affiliation when you're, you're sending those questions. So, you know, I wanna begin, Dr. Pohi and I uh, discussed a little bit about how we should do this. And uh, we have an hour. Um, what we thought we would do is have a conversation for the first half, maybe 30, 35 minutes, and then open it uh, to questions. So 
please, um, you can begin to put those uh, questions in um, the email and the other forms that we told you about. So um, let me begin, you know, as I read this book and I, I really truly felt that it was a very cinematic book in addition to being great history. There's the reason, you know, so many of us know about the Cuban Missile Crisis, or at least many of us who maybe even lived through that period, but um, the, there is a difference. And that difference is that a lot of the perspective has been from the US side, sources that we know about, but now enter Dr. Pohi going into recently declassified KGB archives held in Ukraine and doing research in that and finding kind of a different side, a different understanding perhaps of what happened in those fateful days. So um, uh, Dr. Plohi, if we could begin with that, did that new information change your view of what happened during the Cuban Missile Crisis? Yes, the short answer is yes, absolutely. Uh, I'm not the first scholar working with KGB archives. Uh, 20 plus years ago, a wonderful book was published by uh, Tim Naftali and Fursenko, and they used the uh, KGB documents from the headquarters in Moscow, so basically related to what the KGB station in Washington was doing. My KGB sources come from a different place, from uh, Ukraine, as was already mentioned. And it turned out, I didn't know that before I started research, that approximately 80% plus minus of all the uh, formations, either it's missiles or the, the personnel, were shipped, shipped either from Ukraine or through the Ukrainian Black Sea and Black Sea ports. Crimea and Odessa and Nikolaev. And each of the ships that left the uh, Soviet Union through the Black Sea for Cuba and then came back, they had a KGB officer. And KGB officer reported on what was happening in route to Cuba, what was happening in Cuba, and then on the way back. And what we get from there, something that we don't get from any other source, and that's reporting on what actually people thought about that people who were sent to, to Cuba, how many people actually didn't want to go, or how many people were saying that, well, we are unhappy that our for three years, that that would be, would be continued for, for yeah, an, an identified period of time. I heard that from the American side, there were also people unhappy for those reasons, uh, serving in the, in the National Guard or otherwise. So that is, that is one contribution. Another one is that we now understand much, much, much better than before how it happened that the Soviets were able to deliver uh, um, ballistic missiles, 40,000, more than 40,000 troops in, in Cuba, the tactical nuclear weapons that the US actually didn't know about. And about uh, tactical nuclear weapons or the number of the troops, it was unknown until the end of the Cold War. So there were 43,000, the CIA, White House, Kennedy, who was making all those decisions, McNamara, they believed that there were only 10,000, not knowing that there were also uh, tactical nuclear weapons. So we now know from the reports of those KGB officers that those troops, those soldiers were 
kept in uh, trim decks of their ships day and day out without possibility to get out to breathe. So this really, really inhuman in, in conditions in which they were, they were transported to Cuba. And another major contribution is that uh, when the Soviet ships were coming back after the deal was already struck, they were exposed to the inspection by the American ships and American airplanes. Castro didn't agree to allow the American or UN inspectors on the territory of Cuba. So Khrushchev was forced to allow this inspection on sea. And that was a major, major humiliation for the, for the Soviet army, for military forces. When um, Khrushchev was ousted two years after the end of the crisis in 1964, the Minister of Defense, Rodion Malinovsky, addressed his, his generals and said that, uh, listing all sorts of um, misdeeds by, by the leader who was just ousted with the help of Malinovsky himself. So he said that never in history either the Russian army or the Soviet army suffered that kind of humiliation. And we now know that from the KGB sources what, what he meant when there were really conflicts on the ships between the captain of the ship who was following the orders and the military commander who was saying, no, I'm not going to show the missiles. Hmm. You know, let's, if we stand back and look at this, it is really extraordinary. I mean, you mentioned you know, 40,000 troops, all of these missiles, and the mere fact that they were there is, is extraordinary. But what was going on in the mind of Nikita Khrushchev that he would even make that audacious decision to do that? What was his calculus? Khrushchev clearly didn't understand uh, what, what an impact that would have, not just on Kennedy, but on the Americans as a whole. People who knew more about the United States, including the KGB, were warning him that, uh, or the Minister of, of Foreign Affairs, Gromyko, were warning him, okay, that will, that will blow into your face. That, that, that will be a major, major uh, reaction coming from the, from the United States. When Khrushchev was thinking in terms of, okay, they put their missiles uh, uh, in Turkey, uh, and and I swallowed that. And and uh, we we have our missiles in Europe, and Europeans don't raise much of a fuss about that as well. So the expectation was that actually the the uh, reaction from the U.S. would be subdued. He also was trying to do that secretly. We know now how that was done. Is the idea that he would then tell Kennedy after the uh, elections in, in uh, congressional elections in November of 1962 that, you know, by the way, we have our ballistic missiles in Cuba when it would be really too late to do anything about that or react. So he was gambling. He believed that he could do that in secret and many were done secretly and quite successfully from that point of view, but, but he, couldn't, he couldn't hide the missiles for, for, for forever, for eternity. They were detected and really he got the reaction that he didn't, he didn't expect he would get. Yeah. And another part of this that I thought was fascinating is the psychological part. You really get into, uh, let's say, Khrushchev's understanding of what he thought was going on with Kennedy, young president, kind of newly in office, and then the United States understanding of what Russia was up, to, the Soviet Union was up to. 
So could you um, give us a peek into their personalities and how they misjudged each other, why they thought um, the way that they did about the other? Well, uh, let's start with Khrushchev. He um, was someone who was really uh, taking risk. That, 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 was, that was his lifestyle, not thinking much about, about what the consequences might be. Uh, there was an interesting episode in his, in his uh, career on the international uh, arena when he flew to the United States on the invitation of the President Eisenhower. So he was flying in the um, biggest at that time in the world airplane, the Soviet-built airplane, was extremely proud about that. The problem was that the airplane was not properly tested. So, and the, the engineers discovered that there were cracks in the, in the engine and those cracks can grow. Khrushchev didn't say no and didn't change the plane. Instead, the uh, half of the Soviet uh, Navy was stationed in the Atlantic along the route uh, that, that the plane was supposed to take in case there is an emergency landing to save the uh, premier of the and, and the leader, the, the, the head of the party of the Soviet Union. So that, that just give you, gives you some idea about what, what kind of person Khrushchev was. And uh, he, he really didn't have much of international experience before he uh, became the, the, the really emerged as the leader without much of a competition in the mid 1950s, 1957. He relied on Molotov and others. So it was easy for him to misunderstand and misjudge Kennedy or, or uh, the, the United States political system. He never understood what democracy was, how it worked. He believed that if he would apply enough pressure on Kennedy, he could get from Kennedy almost anything he wanted. Because the industrial complex, that's, that's what Khrushchev knew about. So he was concerned about that. But it wasn't understanding of democracy and how democracy worked. Mm -hmm. And, Kennedy, um, yes. oh, sorry. No, no, please go ahead. Uh, yeah, in, in terms of Kennedy, uh, he basically kept asking the same question to, to his Russia experts. Can anyone explain to me what is going on? Why he is doing that? And one of the experts said, well, but Mr. President, we did the same. We put our missiles in Turkey. <laughs> and, and it took Kennedy a while to, to realize that that could be actually a factor in, in, in uh, Khrushchev's thinking as well. Uh, so but yeah, they, 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 they really acted, both of them, in the, I don't know, looking for the black cat in the, in, in the, in the really very dark room. Uh, and uh, um, there were a lot of misunderstanding and misgestion, misunderstanding of, of the situation, of the motives, and as the result of that, really making the decisions that were not, not very sound, I would think. Yes, and you point out the danger um, that there actually was incorrect intelligence. Uh, I'm just thinking of one example. Basically, um, Russia, or the Soviet Union believed that the United States did want to invade Cuba. And uh, there were, on the other side, there were other miss, um, let's say misses in intelligence. What were the most significant to you? The, the most significant was, again, from um, perspective of the Soviet Union, is 
the, the misunderstanding and misjudgment what 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 the the placing of the missiles could, could produce that was the biggest the, the biggest mistake and the reason was not that the Soviet intelligence was wrong about that but uh, actually Khrushchev didn't want to, to to hear anything that would would go against the decision that he already made so it's a very very much one-man show no much of discussion going back and forth. There are meetings of the presidium, but mostly it's Khrushchev who is speaking and everyone else is silent and says, yes, there was just one person who, who uh, tried to, to, to speak reason and that was Mikoyan. Uh, from, the, from the American side, again, the biggest, the biggest uh, intelligence failure was missing, missing this mass mass uh, movement of the, of the of the soviet uh, soviet troops and missiles until until it was almost too late but there were others as well and uh, uh, one of uh, one of them was that the the uh, both of them they didn't have uh, right intelligence and the intelligence was not timing coming in time for example, one uh, the, the we met eye to eye, and, and the other side blinked. That's that became part of the of the Cuban uh, uh, missile crisis mythology. But uh, Kennedy and people around him learned that the other side blinked, meaning turning turning the ships back from the from the quarantine or blockade line. Twenty four hours after that already happened. So the, the Kennedy gives his okay for attacking a particular number of ships if they cross the, the uh, quarantine line. And at that time, those ships are already moving for more than 20 hours away from that line. And there is no that information in, 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 in uh, Washington, in, not in Washington in general, but uh, in White House at the XCOM meetings, they don't learn about that uh, until, didn't learn about that until it was too late. So. That is just one example. And then, uh, especially in, in, in case of Khrushchev, he really lost control over, over his troops in, in, in Cuba. And that, that was, I don't know whether it's, it's not an intelligence failure, but it's command and control failure, which, which was of disastrous proportions. Which kind of raises another question about Castro, because Fidel Castro is our third character here. What were his interests in this? What was he trying to do? Um, and how did he influence the outcome of what happened in this crisis? Well, Castro is extremely important figure in that entire story that is very often, too often overlooked completely. So the most of what we have on the Cuban Missile Crisis, the focus is on 13 days on XCOM, on Kennedy making his decisions, if you include somebody else, that would be crucial, but Castro really gets, gets short shrift in, in, in most of, of the narratives that we have. When it, it depended on him whether to say yes or no to, to missiles, he, was, uh, the, uh, he took some time to think about that. He was consulting with his, with his aides on that issue. And we know from the history of the Cuban Missile Crisis that Castro was not a yes man when it comes to his relations with Khrushchev. He could say no, and he was saying no many times. This time he said yes. So there would be no Cuban Missile Crisis without Castro saying yes. And then once the crisis was 
another another point the crisis was not resolved yet but castro was so uh, pan paranoid almost he panicked that the invasion was coming that he sent uh, khrushchev a letter advocating preemptive nuclear strike at the united states of america so again khrushchev rejected that considered that to be completely crazy but that that's that's basically castro and and his position in the crisis once the deal was reached between khrushchev and kennedy uh, castro refused to accept it because it was a, it was an affront to his to his prestige to the prestige of his newly independent country he was pushed around by another superpower he wasn't prepared to do that and fall in line so at the end you see this this situation where uh, khrushchev trying one thing after another and all of them didn't produce the desirable effect he orders his commanders to show the missiles to the to the american airplanes and american ships at, at high seas which again was a major major blow to his own prestige and created this resentment in uh, among the military that certainly didn't help him two years later so again and in all these episodes castro 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 is an important extremely important figure in all that story. Mm. And going back to uh, our two main characters, President Kennedy and Premier uh, Khrushchev, you certainly had brinkmanship, there is no question. Um, and yet you point out that both of them ultimately had a fear of nuclear war. And that essentially, I think, although you can tell us, uh, seems to be the point of why we didn't, you know, the world wasn't blown up, which is both of those men really felt that um, there was extraordinary danger and they wanted to stop it. So can you tell, talk a little bit more about the approach of each man? Uh, absolutely. Uh, the, uh, that, that is uh, an important part of my book and argument in general, because in the book I look at uh, something that normally um, is not in the, the center of uh, narrative about the Cuban Missile Crisis, and I am looking at the um, uh, exactly cases of uh, misjudgment, misunderstanding, and, and uh, a real situation where we were on the brink of the, of the nuclear war. There was, there was a lot of that in, in the story of the Cuban Missile Crisis. Then the question that I asked myself, okay, if, if they are there and I documented them and they showed why they happened and how they happened, why we are still here, why I'm still writing this book. And the best answer that I could give was that despite of all these mistakes, missteps, misjudgments in terms of each other intentions, losing control over the troops, both leaders shared one thing in common, and that was really the fear of the nuclear war. They belong to different generation in many ways. Kennedy was born in 1917, the revolution in, in Russia, in the Russian empire, that really propelled Khrushchev to, to who he became. Khrushchev was already, was already a, a grown man at that time. So in that sense, generations were different. But in one way, they belong to the same generation shaped by experience of Hiroshima, Nagasaki, Castle Bravo bomb uh, test uh, of 1954 and Tsar bomb test of 1961. So it was a generation, not just of nuclear age, but the generation shaped by the arrival of the hydrogen bomb and hydrogen 
age. And they knew what, what, what the outcome could be, and they were not prepared to pay price for that. So the war didn't happen because those two men, they actually got this very healthy fear of nuclear weapons and nuclear war. And we see how they, they actually try to, Khrushchev is scared, very scared. There is a lot of sources uh, talking about that. He is really frightened. He starts to retreat immediately after, after Kennedy's uh, speech uh, on TV, public speech. And Kennedy is, is basically prepared to pay the price for, for de-escalation. He, he sends his brother to uh, the Soviet ambassador, the bringing, uh, offering this uh, backdoor deal of removal of the American missiles from uh, Turkey in exchange for the Soviets uh, removing their missiles from Cuba when the majority of the executive committee is against that. Kennedy does that. And then if uh, Bobby Kennedy's mission would not be successful, he has plan B or plan C maybe using the United Nations and the, the uh, Secretary General of the United Nations, you turn to actually deliver the same message, to propose to Kennedy and Khrushchev to do this swap of missiles. So uh, he's prepared to do something that was very dangerous for his political career. He trusted Khrushchev with a secret, that he made a secret deal. He was telling on the phone uh, to Eisenhower, to, to, to everybody that, no, that was not part of the deal. Turkey is not part of the deal. He trusted Khrushchev with that. His, 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 his political career could be really severely damaged. But he was taking this risk because he, he was trying to do whatever he could to avoid, to, to, to resolve the crisis, to avoid the confrontation, to avoid the war. As I said, I was kind of on the edge of my seat, so to speak, as I was reading this, because obviously the stakes were enormous. So I'm looking at, uh, we're getting a lot of questions. So I would like, I have one more question, but I will remind our audience, if you do want to ask questions, you can submit them via email uh, to Kenan at WilsonCenter.org or Twitter at Kennan Institute or on our Facebook page. And if you could just tell us who you are and what's your affiliation, if you could, we'd appreciate that. So just one more question. And I, I think it's, um, it's the one that I have the most, it worries me. This seems like such an extraordinary event, but in your estimation, Serhi Polhi, could something like this happen again today? Well, that's, that's, th thank you. This is the question that I was thinking about as well. What, what is the relevance to today? And I am a historian. I, I started to work on that book because I was interested in the subject. I, I uh, don't remember it, but certainly I was, I, I lived, I, I was at that time already, I was born. And uh, uh, I, I was surprised to, to realize that actually there is, there is this relevance for, for today. And the relevance is in a way that Cuban Missile Crisis, the, the, the situation was so, so dangerous that um, it was a wake up call for 
quite a few people in the world leaders, I mean, uh, including Kennedy and Khrushchev. So one year later, in 1963, they signed a partial test ban treaty. That, that's the beginning, the, the mother of all arms control treaties. After that, the arms control really starts. The non-proliferation treaty is later and then SALT one and then START and so on and so forth. Now we are very much in, in uh, pre-Cuban Missile Crisis situation. The Cold War agreements that were signed are already gone, all gone. They either expired or the two sides withdrew from them. There is a number of agreements that are still going on, but actually they, they really don't, don't perform the same function as the set of agreements that existed in 70s and 80s performed. And that the role of those agreements was that the arms race, while it, it was still going on, it was regulated. There were certain rules. There were expectations based on that. Now we are really in uncharted waters of pre-1962 arms race, which is going on already now for at least 10 years, which is, uh, has very little limitations. And those limitations that are still there, those treaties actually are, are being uh, uh, abandoned by the, by the countries that, again, it's, it's, it, today it is the United States and Russia. Uh, and there are much more drivers of the nuclear highway than there were back in 1962, which makes the whole situation more dangerous. And again, when we talk today about the, the uh, arms control, uh, it's, it's not just about the two superpowers, they're still the same. It's, it's uh, the United States and Russia, but also about the rising nuclear powers, China in particular, but also others as well. Okay, well, uh, now I do want to go to questions. And thank you, Sergei. It was great. Um, let's move on to questions. And there's an intriguing first one. Um, I'm going to read it because I'm not, actually not familiar with this. Uh, let's see who sent this. That is uh, Tsuyoshi Hasegawa, uh, Professor Emeritus, UC Santa Barbara. So uh, Professor Hasegawa asks, I haven't read your book yet, but I wonder if you could if you discuss the episode regarding the first intercontinental air float flight carrying journalists and officials during this time period, which almost was mistaken for carrying warheads. According to the late Bud Whelan, uh, who is former deputy director for science and technology at CIA, who was responsible for U-2 flights during that time, uh, the CIA received information that that flight potentially was carrying warheads. And before the order was given, JFK said, how solid is that intelligence? They told him it wasn't really great and the operation was canceled. Do you know, is there, do you know anything about that or can you give us details, I should say? Mm -hmm. Well, uh, first of all, uh, Professor Sigawa, thank you very much for your question. I, I certainly know your work, we never met and I use one of your books in my, in my course. Um, uh, no, this is, this is the first time that I really uh, hear about, about that particular case. Uh, what I can say that during the missile crisis, per se, there was a U-2 plane that lost its way and ended up over Chukotka, over Siberia, and th that was a major, uh, major concern that the Soviets would decide that that was the last reconnaissance flight before a nuclear attack on the on the um, 
on the Soviet Union and would surely go for a preemptive nuclear attack. That was a major concern for McNamara. That was a major concern for Kennedy. But uh, I don't, I'm not familiar with the case that you discuss. And certainly the first thing, once the uh, event is, is over, I will, I will uh, try to find as much as possible about this. Thank you. This is fantastic because there's another question by an academic coming up, and this is precisely what the Kennan Institute does, which is, you know, bring people together who are working on various issues. And there's a lot of fantastic research taking place not only at Kennan, but at the Wilson Center in general. So this is fantastic. So question number two, uh, coming from Renata Keller, Associate Professor, University of Nevada in Reno. Uh, I am also working on a book about the Cuban Missile Crisis from the point of view of Latin Americans. And I wonder whether the Ukrainian KGB officers wrote in their reports about conditions on the bases in Cuba. Did they describe the Cuban people's or soldiers' response to either the arrival of the missiles or to the resolution of the crisis? Great question. Yes, thank you. Uh, great question indeed. Uh, there is a little bit about, about uh, inter interacting with the ordinary Cubans, uh, but not much because the, uh, the uh, uh, KGB officers were uh, on those ships and were um, together with the, with the uh, crews and they were not actually, they never disembarked, they were not allowed to um, go freely in Cuba. So they, they reported basically on what was happening on the ships and maybe around ships. But uh, there is, there is um, a fair amount of information in my book on, uh, on uh, really um, relations between the, the, the Soviets and, and the Cubans. And the, that information mostly comes from the memoirs of the Soviet officers and Soviet soldiers. And there have been an explosion of, the, of those and they're, they're really very, very interesting and very revealing, including uh, in terms of the uh, disappointment that the, the, Soviet, the, the, the Soviet officers had when they were leaving Cuba, when there were no one uh, on, from the Cuban side coming and saying to them, thank you or goodbye or anything of that kind. And the reason was that uh, Castro was extremely unhappy with the, with the deal that didn't include himself. There are also uh, reports, not in KGB documents, but partially in the memoirs, partially in the, um, um, in the, in the diplomatic reports, which are available now about the cases when the uh, unhappiness with the uh, Kennedy's deal and Kennedy's decision uh, demonstrated itself, including during the party that was thrown by the Soviets to mark the anniversary of the October Revolution, which was of course in early November, when the, it seems to me the, the commander of the, uh, or the, the chief of the uh, Cuban um, intelligence service raises the toast to Joseph Stalin in, in the symbolic gesture of, of really rejecting uh, Khrushchev and, and his soft, allegedly his soft attitude toward or, or policy toward uh, the, the United States. So uh, the, there is a little bit in the, in the uh, KGB sources that I consulted, 
but most of that kind of material would be in the memoirs and also in some of the diplomatic reports. Uh, okay. Uh, there is another question actually from Andreas Etkes, US historian, University of Munich. Uh, and so uh, this, is, this is good because I think there are some aspects that are coming out that are uh, illuminating certain areas of this that perhaps we didn't look at before. But uh, Mr. Etkes says, you alluded to the fact that his failure in the Cuban Missile Crisis was part of what led to Khrushchev's downfall. I was always impressed, he writes, by the fact that the Soviets did keep the non-official parts of the deal with Kennedy's secret, even though Khrushchev might have used it to counter the view that he had lost and the Soviet Union had been humiliated by the US. Why did he and others never use this in public? Valentin Fallian once told me that they were working on a better relationship with the US and wanted to honor the secret agreement they had made. Were there discussions inside the KGB or other Soviet circles to uncover the secret deal before Dean Rusk did it in the 1980s? Mm -hmm. uh, well, thank you. Uh, excellent question. Um, what I can say about, about the, the uh, Khrushchev's position and maybe motivation. One thing that we have today, we have access to uh, something that was not intended for public um, dissemination. Uh, those were his conversations with the leaders of the uh, East European communist countries. And it seems to me there on the, uh, on, on the um, uh, even on the Woodrow Wilson um, website, some of those documents. And there he, he alludes to some secret deal, but he never tells even to the Czechs or to the, to the uh, uh, other East European leaders that there was such a deal. Now that we know what happened, you can read between the, between the lines that that's what he means, but he doesn't, doesn't tell even them about that. And from uh, another, another source that we have, again, recently published his uh, speech at the uh, party, uh, uh, Central Committee party plan, where again, he, he mm, talks about, he, he tries to, to convince his uh, people who elected him really that uh, that was a victory, that that, that, that was not, that was not uh, um, a failure, that, that, that mm, he, he, he won in that whole story. Again, he doesn't talk about that. The, the reason why he is not doing that, I would certainly agree with Fallin. And uh, what we know, at least what I learned and they didn't know as a result of this research, there is a dramatic change in dynamics in relations between, uh, between Kennedy and Khrushchev that happens, that change happens as the result of the Cuban Missile Crisis. If before the Cuban Missile Crisis, Khrushchev is someone who is really in the driving seat, who is on the attack, who sets the agenda. And, and uh, Kennedy is very often unsure of himself, disoriented. After the Cuban Missile Crisis, it's, it's Kennedy who is in the driving seat. And uh, really, uh, the uh, treaty that was signed, the partial ba uh, test ban treaty that, that I mentioned, again, it's signed because Khrushchev accepts whatever Kennedy has to offer him and, and drops, drops his demands because he needed legitimacy 
especially after the Cuban Missile Crisis. And part of that legitimacy would come from him fixing and, and improving the relations with the United States. So from that point of view, uh, releasing this information would not help that agenda. So it, that, that is my reading, and it looks like that this reading uh, coincides uh, with, with what, uh, what Mr. Fallon had to say. There is a question from John Martin from the Wilson Center. Uh, was there a back channel between Soviet intelligence and an American journalist, John Scally? Do you know that part of it? Yes. Okay. It was one, uh, thank you. It, it, was, it, it is discussed in detail in the book by Natalia Forsanko that I already mentioned. Um, and uh, it was one of many back channels um, between White House and, and Kremlin. Uh, but that was a back channel about which uh, Kremlin didn't suspect that it existed, as far as I understand. So one back channel was through the Brinian and Bobby Kennedy. Another was Bobby Kennedy and uh, Lieutenant Colonel Bolshakov, who was the uh, representative, the, the officer of the uh, military intelligence. So there was back channel through diplomatic, through, through the embassy, through the military intelligence, and KGB was desperate to establish its own uh, uh, back channel. And Scully is, is part of that story, part of that effort. The way how I interpret what happened was that uh, uh, the last name of the, of the uh, chief of the station was Fiklisov. In this desperate attempt to become relevant in all that story, and not just picking on the rumors here and there and reporting them to Moscow, but to, 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 be, to, to establish this channel. He suggests to Scali something that he was never authorized to suggest, that the, the uh, Soviet Union would agree for the UN inspection of the sites on Cuba. And in the White House, they believe that this is offer coming directly from Khrushchev. And that gets into the letter that Kennedy writes to Khrushchev, and Khrushchev now believes that this is the, the condition uh, coming from Kennedy. And eventually accepts it, accepts with all these huge issues and problems that put him on collision course with, with um, Castro, then puts him in trouble with his own military because Castro would never allow that UN inspection. Uh, uh, so uh, I, I guess it, it was good for Fiklisov's career that it never, it never came to the fore what actually happened. Fiklisov in his memoirs was trying to say that, no, it was Scully who suggested that. Scully is saying, no, I never suggested that. So it was one of these many mi miscommunications. But my understanding is that AGB was desperately trying to improve its um, its um, uh, position, it, its standing in the crisis. And this is happening at the time also when KGB is not the most uh, trusted organization around uh, in, in, in Moscow. Khrushchev tries to do whatever he can actually to, to make them less powerful. The uh, people whom he appoints as the leaders of the, uh, as, as the chairman of the KGB are the former leaders of the Komsomol, of the Young Communist League. So people with really very little 
political weight of their own. They fully depend on, on Khrushchev. And they're not members of presidium. They're not even candidate members of the presidium. So it's a very different story compared to Beria or compared to Andropov later. So KGB are really, really keep low profile and they try to increase it. And again, Scully's story is one of those, again, very consequential in the sense of how it got Khrushchev in trouble. But, uh, but uh, the, 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 this is the back channel that existed, but didn't, didn't perform its, its, its actually function. There, there was, there was more miscommunication created by it. We actually have a follow-up on uh, the Scali and Fomin issue from Randolph Clark. And he says, was the Yenching Palace Agreement, I'm not familiar with that, but uh, between Scali and Fomin, a convenient myth? Well, uh, I would say that there is the, 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 there were layers of mythology. And when I said before that, that that was, this is my reading, this is my interpretation, that's because actually the participants of, of these meetings, Scully and, and Fiklisov give, give different uh, conflicting and contradicting accounts about what was, uh, what was going on. And my reading is based on uh, basically placing this, the, 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 this uh, recollections of what happened into the context, a broader context of what was happening in Washington and in Moscow at that time. So again, uh, uh, the, 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 there is uh, a more than one myth and more than one mythology. And uh, um, again, uh, we're trying now to do our best to, to figure out what indeed happened, but there, is, there are layers and layers and layers of that mythology. Sergei Ploka, you deal with history, but here's a question that's going to ask you to speculate about something. It's actually quite intriguing. Uh, from David Sobelson, uh, no affiliation, he writes, what if Nixon had been elected in 1960? Do you want to, <laughs> do you want to go there? Excellent question. I, I think that um, things could turn differently. Uh, and Khrushchev uh, um, didn't want Nixon to be elected. Uh, we, we have now this, this information coming from both from KGB sources and, and some information from the US sources that uh, a, a KGB officer would approach Bobby Kennedy during the electoral campaign and offer assistance from, from the Soviet Union. And uh, the, the advice that he got was actually don't, don't interfere. But apparently Bobby Kennedy actually showed the, the, Soviet, the Soviet agent the map, the electoral map. So th there was some communication before that. Enough for Khrushchev to believe that he elected Kennedy, that Kennedy owed him the, the election. And uh, uh, was uh, bullying really. In 1961, in 1962, the, the Cuban Missile Crisis is just the last of those examples, but certainly the meeting between Kennedy and, and Khrushchev in Vienna in 1961, that at least from, you don't see that from the protocols of the State Department, but if you see recollections of Kennedy, Kennedy thought that it went extremely bad, that he was beaten up by, by, uh, by uh, Khrushchev the Berlin Wall and so on and so forth. So uh, I don't think that, that Khrushchev would behave that way uh, when it comes to Nixon. 
uh, he considered Nixon to be much tougher. So there could be another crisis, maybe a worse crisis than we got with the Cuban Missile Crisis. But I don't think that we would have under Nixon the exact replay of that story. Mm -hmm. uh, there's a question here from uh, Hiroaki Nakanishi. And he says, the story of the Cuban Missile Crisis clearly illustrates the need for nuclear risk reduction. Is the Chinese government doing enough to heed the warnings of the past? And should they get involved in nuclear arms control negotiation or nuclear risk reduction talks? I know it's modern, not uh, history, but important. Well, uh, what we know today is that, uh, again, uh, the, the, uh, China has quite ambitious plans in terms of doubling its its uh, nuclear arsenal in the last ten, in the last in the next ten years. Now, uh, with doubling the, the arsenal, they would probably get again if that is implemented to uh, around six hundred uh, nuclear warheads. It should be still uh, very little compared to what uh, thousands that the United States and Russia have today. And uh, from I know the Chinese position is in terms of the arms control that, uh, okay, you big guys decide between yourselves. Once you will be on our level, we will, we will join and we'll be talking. But at this point, uh, the, the, the Cold War is over for more than 30 years, but there are still two nuclear superpowers in the world. And again, I, I, I talked about that before. It's, it's the uh, Russia and the United States. So uh, uh, Chinese are very, very uh, reluctant to, to join any, uh, any arms control agreements. And that has been certainly one of the, of the uh, positions or expectations coming from, uh, from uh, the United States. When it comes to expectations of Russia, they immediately, once the US raises the issue of China being part of that agreement, they raise the question of uh, the, the issue of France and, and uh, Britain. And my understanding is that at this point, Britain, France, and, and China have roughly the same amount of the nuclear, of the nuclear warheads. So there are, there are very serious issues and problems in the way how you approach this new age in terms of the arms control, because again, this is not just the issue of relations between the two nuclear uh, two nuclear superpowers. Uh, in, in, in case of China, there is, of course, another major, major uh, issue is uh, Chinese relations with North Korea and the, the possibility of influencing North Korean government one way or another, because, again, it, it, is, it is a challenge, direct challenge to the United States, but it's also a challenge to the uh, China, which, which is, is, of course, the, the neighbor and, and, and uh, historically one of the two major sponsors of the North Korean regime, the another being, of course, in the past, the Soviet Union. I'm going to ask you um, about your writing and how you approach it, but there is one last question. I'm not quite sure I understand it, but it's uh, from Mr. Randolph Clark, who says, how significant were the troop movements south of Miami? The locals were impressed by the rail traffic. Is that something yes. that you can uh, talk about? Yes, I, I am not familiar well enough with the geography of Florida. 
So I have to work on that. And hopefully when, once the pandemic is over, I, I will catch up on that. But there was a significant, the significant movement of troops. And uh, again, the reason for that was that the blockade was considered by good part of the XCOM, including Bobby Kennedy, as just the first step toward the coming invasion of Cuba. So the preparation for invasion was going on as the negotiations and exchange of letters were happening between Kennedy and Khrushchev. That was, that was the, ultimate, the, the, the ultimate possibility, the ultimate uh, threat. And uh, yes, that involved uh, enormous amount of troops. So that, that, is all, that, that was all very, very real. Hmm. So on the way you approach these books, and I've read now several of them, um, well, I think what's striking is they're very grounded in history and in data and in research that you've done. And a lot of it is uncovering new data. And at the same time, they're filled with kind of like human moments that really capture what was going on. And I'm thinking in the Cuban Missile Crisis, we have the idea that you know, it was the US and as you said, eyeball to eyeball with the Soviet Union. And then it was resolved with the uh, missiles in Turkey, et cetera. But you're pointing out that there were moments that were completely unpredictable. There were moments that the world could have changed because of one human action. So I'm just interested when you're reading, when you're writing this, um, do you look for those human moments and how do you bring them into this narrative? I, I do look for them. And, and uh, the reason is that I, I am interested in, in this broader context and, and broader movements and, and the history of the Cold War and, and, and uh, US relations with, with Caribbean or Latin America and, and, and a role of ideology. So I was trained to, to pay attention to those, to those big things. Uh, but I'm I'm I am interested in people in, in the way, especially in the way how they react in this uh, really critical situations. And uh, the, the, when it comes to nuclear, uh, a lot depends on, on 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 individual on the decision that they made. And uh, maybe for the first time, I, I really fully discovered that in, in working on my book on Chernobyl, uh, because my, my previous books, again, one was on the Yalta conference. And again, there were, there were key figures involved there. It was very interesting. But with, uh, in case of Chernobyl, or in case with the Cuban Missile Crisis, it's not just the, the big guys at the top. The decision made by the commander on the ground by, by, by an officer on the ground or on the ship, a captain of, of the submarine, they could, they could really bring the, the, the nuclear war, the, 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 the disaster of the world altogether, because again, the issues of the, of the command and control. And uh, that, uh, that tells me that, uh, well, telling the, the story from this uh, bird's eye view with ideology and tensions, it's not enough to understand to understand what what the world went through. We have also to look at the people who who find themselves. Maybe many of them are not prepared at all in the situations where on their decision depends depends 
a lot, a lot of things. So I, I really uh, interested in, in those in those uh, situations, in those cases. The question is how you get to them. You go through the memoirs, you go through the reports, what you trust, what you don't trust. So it, it's a little bit tricky, trickier than painting a big picture. But I don't think that a big picture would be right and correct without those details. Yeah. Well, uh, Sergei Florhi, this I'm very glad that you do that because I think that's you know why your books are so gripping. And this one in particular, in fact, let's see, um, nuclear, uh, yes, uh, here it is, yes, yes. <laughs> nuclear folly. I, I actually marked sections in this because they were so amazing, but um, I highly recommend it. Nuclear Folly, A History of the Cuban Missile Crisis by Serhi Plochi. And thank you very much for being with us. Really appreciate it. And thank you to the audience for some excellent uh, questions. Glad we got the academic communication going with some people. And uh, thank you to our co-sponsors, the History and Public Policy Program, the Cold War International History Project, and the Nuclear Proliferation International History project. So we look forward to you, seeing you again at another Kennan Institute event. And thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you, Joe.